Hello, and welcome to another installment of Visionaries, a podcast that demonstrates you don't need a great deal of eyesight in order to be a visionary. I am, as always, your humble host and correspondent. My name is John Steinberg, joined by my estimable and extremely talented co-host. He goes by the name of... Santino Maoni, hello guys, back again, once again for another great episode of Visionaries. John, I'm going to kick us off for the first segment of the episode as we always start off, words to live by. I got to make the quote selection for this week, and the quote that I chose was from former President Barack Obama. Here is the quote. Change will not come if we wait for some other person or some other time. We are the ones that we've been waiting for. We are the change that we seek. So, John, when you hear that quote, what goes through your mind? What do you think of? What does it invoke in you? Well, it takes me back to uh, Grant Park, 2008, uh, the president-elect providing the country with his first official speech after being declared uh, the winner-elect. And... He was somebody that came as the ultimate outsider. Prior to the candidacy of Barack Obama, you were in a perpetual race between longtime political figures like Bob Dole, Bill Clinton, Jack Kemp, John McCain. These people had been in government for decades upon decades. Uh, Barack Obama was in his 40s when he became president. He didn't live a long enough life to have spent decades upon decades within government. So he brought a fresh, younger perspective to a presidential campaign. And in doing so, just by his mere existence and the mission he sought to achieve, he espoused this message. Everybody talks about it as, oh, oh, hope and change and hope and change and hope and change. And it almost became, in the aftermath of his victory, a pejorative uh, that the other side would use to criticize Obama and his uh, like-minded followers as being too pie in the sky, too um, unrealistic, naive, to the realities of modern American government. But this idea of being the change that you would like to see in the world, obviously this stems from Mahatma Gandhi and his eternal credo. But basically, it kind of goes back to the uh, the first time I ever saw uh, the man who was to become President Obama speak at the 2004 Democratic National Convention, where he said, listen, if a skinny kid with a funny name from a different kind of place has a place in America for him, then it does for you as well. Something like that. Not allowing, so extrapolating for our purposes here, the people that we talk about, those within marginalized communities, Taking control of your own voice, educating yourself, arming yourself with enough tools so that when the opportunity finally does come, you are ready and in position to be that change that you would like to see in the world. So you don't want to see a person, you know, the unemployment rate, uh, I believe we have cited this statistic in the past. But the unemployment rate within the disabled community is over 75%. Well, if it's not a statistic that you like hearing, a statistic that stays with you, then it's incumbent upon you to figure out how to change things so you don't become a part of that statistic. Yeah, definitely. And I think the other aspect of this too, more so just kind of focusing on the quote itself in general I think it's a great quote that a lot of people should really take to heart and should apply to their own lives because a lot of times, you know, I'm going to relate this back kind of to my own life and the 
people that I know in college and kind of how, you know, we're, we're, we're all 20, 19 years old and, and speaking about myself and my college, my, my, my fellow college students, we're all, you know, in the range of 18 to 22 years old. And whether it's us wanting to make change, whether it's us wanting to achieve certain goals in our life, we always kind of say, oh, well, it's not the right time. Oh, what if, what, what if this goes wrong? Or we don't have the requisite, you know, people around us, the requisite resources, that kind of thing. And we kind of make all these excuses rather than just look at us, look at our, look within ourselves and say, hey, we're right here. We're all we need to, again, whether it's make change, whether it's achieve our goals in our own lives, we're what we're waiting for. There's nothing else that's stopping us besides ourselves. You're the, you're all that you need. And I think that's kind of the point he was trying to make in the quote, at least one of the points. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts on what I just kind of referenced, but that's kind of what I took away from hearing when I heard the quote and read it initially, that's what I took away from it. Right. Don't allow yourself to wait for someone else to come along and implement the change that you would like to see enacted in the world. Do your best so that you can do it yourself and you don't have to wait for that person to come along and make monumental change because you're, I don't know, too scared, nervous, not sure if it's the right thing. Uh, Sometimes those very practical, needling, anxiety-ridden, feelings need uh, to be cast aside in order for you to make the best possible steps in your own life. And change is oftentimes a big part of that. It's hard to see it when you're younger. Definitely hard to see it until you really start aging and really start kind of losing things and um, understanding the short nature of life. Um, And in that short nature, why be the person who leads life as an eternal wallflower? Make an impact. Definitely, 100%. Don't don't wait around for other things to come along for you. Again, be the change that you want to see in the world. Do what you want to do. Achieve your goals. You need to be that driving force. 100%, I agree with you. John, I know that you got to select our next uh, inductee into our Handprints Hall of Fame. Who did you select for this week's? This week, we are going to be enshrining none other than one Florence Nightingale. When we think about modern-day nursing, caring for our elders, caring for those in need with various ailments of all kinds and all sorts, the name of Florence Nightingale looms extremely large. A one-time caretaker abroad in the 18th century, Florence Nightingale made an outsized impact with her, for the time, new newfangled ideas for how to treat and work with patients. You see, medicine today didn't work like a medicine from 150, 200 years ago. It did require nurses uh, and folks, doctors, nurses, principally nurses, honestly, uh, to really set the standard when it came to treating patients. Uh, And it was Florence Nightingale who normalized Uh, the treatment of these injured or uh, sick patients. She gathered colleagues and cohorts to become one of the first real unionized leaders in uh, British medicine. Florence Nightingale taught the world to exude genuine compassion when dealing with Uh, both the disabled, the sick, and the elderly, and that rather than sort of banish them uh, to large buildings where they were neither to be heard from kind of ever again, she wanted to get the most out of the life that her patients still had remaining. Prior to Florence Nightingale being sent 
to a long-term care facility was akin to a death sentence. And because of her willingness to go in, shake things up, and implement a more humane set of standards with respect to caring for uh, the sick, disabled, and elderly, Florence Nightingale revamped the profession, a profession which now has a global presence. Every country around the world has some degree of caregiving of uh, their own version of a nurse. And in the United States and in the Western world, uh, we happen to be blessed with folks from all across the globe who come and who dedicate their lives to treating others with dignity. So this week's inductee, her handprints are going into the ground at Grumman's Chinese Theater right outside the famed movie palace for all the world to see and interact with. Florence Nightingale, you are our latest inductee into the Handprints Hall of Fame. Santino, uh, I know that this was my suggestion. So when I mentioned wanting to include Florence Nightingale, um, what, were, what were some of your thoughts? So I had heard the name before. Um, and when I read up on her again and, and learning about everything she had done, how she essentially kind of reformed the way healthcare and modern medicine the way, the way she learned all of that has literally influenced and changed the way that healthcare and just the quality of care in general has, you know, been implemented in, in the 19th and 20th centuries because, like you said, she's she established St. Thomas's Hospital and the Nightingale Training School for Nurses in 1860. Everything that she did, she laid out the foundation for kind of what our healthcare system in a way is today. And... I think it's kind of cool that we chose somebody a little bit different than what we usually do for Hamprince Hall of Fame because usually, you know, we do, I, I would say in the past and in our, in our previous episodes, we have tried to focus on people that have dealt with, you know, d- disabilities in their lives, challenges in their lives they've had to overcome. And I think it was cool that we highlighted someone like Florence Nightingale who really just had positive impact after positive impact on the world and on that's in, in the specific field again of healthcare. And I just think it was a great selection. Again, I had heard of her before. I wasn't totally familiar with all of her accomplishments of what she did and how much of an impact. And again, how much of a foundation she laid for our, the way that our healthcare system kind of is today. Um, but I think it was a great selection. Everything that she did throughout her life Everything that she impacted, I think, was amazing. And again, great selection. She was definitely worthy of entering our illustrious Handprints Hall of Fame on this show. Yeah, and I think now uh, we'd like to turn it over to another segment, to Profiles in Courage, where we have a conversation with a guest, or even if it's just Santino and I, the two hosts of the program, where we discuss an issue or an array of issues necessary uh, to help keep building on our own education and our own scope of interest as this podcast broadens its overall view. So bearing one Florence Nightingale in mind, taking her contributions from the 1860s before and after, I thought it prudent to have a discussion about what it's like caring for the elderly and disabled members of our own societies in the year of our Lord 2022. How different are things, the overall landscape, from how it appeared during the lifetime of one Florence Nightingale. Have we improved? Do we have quite a ways to go? Uh, What are some experiences that perhaps we've had or we have observed as this continues to be an extremely pressing issue that affects almost every single family uh, in the United States? And we are very much 
at the ground floor figuring all of this out, trying to put standards in that will carry the day for generations to come. So, Santino, when we talk about nursing and in particular caring for our elders, how do you think we're doing as a country compared to what Florence Nightingale might have seen uh, when she reigned 150 years ago? I think nowadays, I mean, the, the thing I wanted to touch on, it, it, it's a tough question to answer, but I think a major difference, at least now, especially with obviously, you know, COVID-19 is not as rampant and, you know, is not as, I guess, deadly as it was two years ago due to the fact that we now have the vaccine and we have the booster shots and all, and we just have, we have more knowledge about it than we did, obviously, when it first kind of came around suddenly in 2020. But I think the way that we've had, that the people and, and society in general have had to care for their elders with COVID-19 being around kind of shifted two years ago because you really had to take a step back and especially pe- people who lived with their grandparents or, you know, again, that whole had grandparents in their household, possibly some older people that had underlying conditions you really had to take into account how your how every one of your actions during the pandemic really did affect like how those actions would directly affect that person because they were extremely compromised during that time because again whether even if they didn't have you know an underlying condition even if they weren't immunocompromised being of that old age the effects that covid-19 could have on them could be life-threatening and possibly fatal. So I think that the way that it's kind of shifted, at least nowadays, in the last year or two, is that young people have really had to take into account their actions and really really grown to understand that their actions, you know, maybe that they, they maybe wouldn't have directly affected their family members in the past. Now, every action they took, every risk they took being around other people and bringing that back into the household was directly going to affect their elders. And I think that's kind of what shifted is just being almost being more considerate and understanding that their actions were going to directly affect them. Whereas in the past, that might not have been the case. And I think that families need to really sit down and get some things on paper. Um, I, in my own experience, um, both my parents, my mom's side of the family, my dad's side of the family, um, have had situations that have required round-the-clock, 24-hour in-home care in order to prolong and make the most out of the lives of my grandparents. And that's expensive, and that forced um, our families into, you know, getting reverse mortgages and, and all of that. So it's a very tough call. Okay. You've got a grandparent, they've hit, let's say their late seventies, eighties, and they're not moving as quickly. They forget things. I mean, maybe they need help sometimes uh, washing up, um, putting on clothes, they uh, sort of take on the role of a de facto kid in a way, or the amount of energy that one expels in order to take care of a child. You're now using this to take care of an elderly family member. Now, this can really be difficult for many American families. Uh, Finances are tough. Space is limited. And, you know, a lot of people didn't go to school to become nurses. Um, A lot of people who have had careers in completely different aspects of uh, the labor force are now thrown into this world where they have to take care of their sick father, their sick mother, grandparents, their sick grandparents. And what do they do? It's like, well... Uh, I don't feel great about having them go in a home, you know, put them in uh, an advanced care facility, a retirement community, if you will. 
uh, a lot of folks still, there's still a stigma a bit with retirement communities, with um, those uh, places where the uh, elderly reside, definitely still a stigma, but we're going to get to a point here as a country where people are just living such ridiculously long lives that it is going to be the norm, these long-term care facilities, or you basically mortgage the property that you worked your entire life to pay off to be able to have in-home health care. As it stands now, I don't see a wonderful solution that would make all parties smile. I see those two solutions, going into a long-term care facility or if you're so lucky that you own your home to take out a reverse mortgage and then use that money to pay for an in-home caregiver. Um, But that being said, it is important to remember that illness and disability and the effects of old age, uh, all of that was kind of stigmatized in prior generations. People were viewed as, oh, oh no, get, okay, he's turned 75, take his license away. No, like, put, put him... Put him in a home, take his license away. He is no longer a thriving, crucial member of our society. And thank goodness we're beyond those primitive ways of thinking. But we are in a tough spot, for sure, with more and more people living longer lives and with the financial implications being what they are. It is definitely a tough spot. Santino, maybe some of your thoughts on the prospects for this long-term battle that we're preparing to mount uh, in order to treat and care for uh, our elderly and disabled members of society. Yeah, I've never really had that experience. I mean, just yet, because I am only 20 years old, I probably will eventually have that have that decision or experience of dealing with the the decision of putting either my parents when they're older or my, you know, any of my grandparents, like at this moment in time, about having to put them in a, in a care system or, you know, an, elder, an elderly home, as they're called. And I've had, again, I've had friends who have had to deal with this of making that tough decision of like, oh, do we do we trust that care service to be able to provide for them properly? Do we do we want to even like almost? It sounds like weird to say it this way, but almost like give them up as if like we're we 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 don't want to feel like we can't take care of them. We don't want to like lose that interaction that we have and kind of just give them up to this to these people that frankly, they are strangers. And obviously that care unit is there to help them. It's there to support them. But it is a very, very tough decision. Going forward, I did agree with your point about how you're saying that people are only going to begin to, they are only going to continue to live longer and longer lives. As, As modern science continues to grow and develop and change, people will, and even just evolution in general, people are going to live longer and longer lives. So I do kind of agree with you that those elderly care homes are going to probably be more prominent in the in you know dec you know decades going forward. That that probably is going to be something that we're going to see become more common of, of people of old age going into those homes, going into those uh, care units. However, I am curious. Just I I want to ask you a question. Like within this conversation, let's say like you know almost it, it's a very difficult question to answer, but. Let's say throw out a hypothetical. Down the line, you 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 have kids. Would you be someone? I, I as somebody that does that does deal with blindness, somebody that does have a disability. How would you feel in terms of being put in an elderly home? Like, because do do elderly homes like have those? Do 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 they have the necessary accommodations even to be able to? To, to be able to help and care for somebody that would have, uh, you know, your, the condition that you have, blindness, or somebody that, you know, is maybe deaf or, you know, has some kind of disability or challenge that they live with, 
do elderly homes kind of have those, uh, you know, adaptations and kind of have services that can help accommodate those? Or like, what, what, what is the situation with that? I'm curious if you have any thoughts or answers for that, for that question. I'm assuming like we saw in a movie we covered on the podcast, um, blind with Alec Baldwin, that in fact, there are, I actually, I I know this, I know this from having gone to hospitals and having been trained uh, a little bit on some of the options um, when I was at the Hatland Center in Northern California, that yes, um, one of the great things about modern nursing, everything that has happened since the reign of Florence Nightingale is that nurses are provided with adequate training and have the requisite skills needed uh, to be able to care for patients with visual difficulties. Um, So I know that in prior generations, um, yeah, the answers were quite troubling. Lots of Buildings that used to be called the blah, 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 psychiatric uh, wing or the blah, 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 blah. Like there's um, a hospital, an abandoned hospital in Camarillo, California, between Los Angeles and um, Santa Barbara that just used to be a home for, I mean, the elderly, anyone with perceived ailments, uh, people who had gotten in trouble, yes, people with diseases, with mental issues, they all were just herded and shepherded into this uh, series of buildings in Camarillo where, I mean, they were not receiving um, A-plus world-class treatment, we'll put it that way. So now the situation is considerably different and uh, folks with visual impairments are treated with a great deal of respect because as part of their education process before they obtain their certificates and their degrees, dealing with blind patients is part of the curriculum. So thankfully... With the advancement of time has come the proliferation of wisdom and education so that we aren't just putting blind people in corners now and like, I don't know, giving them headphones hooked up to a machine that plays an audiobook. Now, life can be way more fruitful and, uh, and meaningful than, than that. Yeah, definitely. And again, I feel like, and like you mentioned, the Hatland Center was one of those institutions that I'm sure services like that. And there are definitely other organizations out there that can provide services like that. So it's, it's good that we're in a time now where we, we, we can afford to have those services for people with all different kinds of challenges and just, just be able to provide services for all kinds of people in today's world. Um, I'm curious though, if you, again, if you have any other thoughts of, Again, it, it's kind of a weird question, but I am curious about it. And since we're on the topic, I feel like it's, you know, it, it's good to ask this question. What are your thoughts about your, even yourself, what, like what, once, once you get older? And it's maybe kind of like a, not like a morbid question, but kind of not a very happy question. But I, I am just curious. Let's say you have kids. In your, in your mind, are you somebody that would want to be put in a home, like in, into one of those facilities or want to be kind of put in a situation where you're cared for by those by, by nurses stuff like that or would you rather be you know around your family and have your family care for you like what do you have thoughts on that is that something you feel like you can answer or just you know thoughts in general but i, I am kind of curious uh it depends on kind of where we are in life um do my wife and i have you know a teenage daughter who is looking at colleges and is trying to get out into kind of the, the real world, if you will, and explore her own passions and interests and decide kind of what she wants to do in life. Um, I never want to be a burden. Um, I mean, across the board. And I, I, I know for a fact that many who find themselves at an older age, 
they have one condition or another that requires help from others that they simply just feel like a burden and that gnaws away at your con- like personal confidence, um, your independence, your feelings of autonomy as just, you know, um, a solid put together person. And um, I hate having to feel that way um, for others. Like I'm taking away a life experience that somebody else could be having, but instead they have to whatever, take me by the arm and walk me across the street because there are no uh, stoplights and it is a real, real outdated crosswalk, something like that. Um, So I'm of the belief that I've had a wonderful uh, life and done many of the things that I wanted to do in life. And um, by the time I get to a certain age, I'll basically feel like, you know what, it is now somebody else's turn. Somebody else is on deck and they need to get the most out of life that they can, um, as many experiences, all kinds as possible. And uh, if it's really going to prove to be a, a dramatic inconvenience, then I would prefer to be in kind of a home. Um, I, I don't want to be anyone's obligation problem. You know what I mean? So I know that others feel differently. Um, but if it were between putting uh, this vast strain on my family by kind of having them take care of me or, hey, you know, come visit me once a week, a couple times a week, etc. cetera, uh, I'll be okay because I got my chance. You know, I, I had my chance to do what was truly important to me in life. And, hey, like, it wasn't by choice. It wasn't for any reason other than this is just what happened. This was old age and this is what old age can do to people. Um, so before this happens to you, basically get out there and get the most out of your life. And then you'll be in this position. A little morbid, I guess more morbid than I, than I had anticipated that sounding, but I don't know. What do you think? No, that's and that that's why I was like when I asked this question, I feel like it was gonna go towards there. But again, it's an interesting conversation, and 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 it's I was just genuinely curious, and I feel like it was you know almost cool and just good for our audience to hear that perspective. I do feel like sometimes people will think about themselves first and almost go, yeah, you know what, like you know I I did all this stuff, like okay, my family should take care of me, like all all that all those kind of thoughts. However, the perspective you put in of like you know what. I got to live my life and do the things that I wanted to do. This is what happens old age. And you're kind of almost in that moment of thinking, you know what? This is going to happen to you eventually too. And I don't want to, in my old age, take away the, uh, you know, almost what what you're supposed to experience, which is your life. You're supposed to go have those experiences the same way that I did. So before you're in the same situation that I am kind of now almost, I want you to go have those experiences and go live your life to the fullest. And I think it's a great perspective to have. And again, you know, you said, oh, maybe it sounds morbid. Like I almost look at it as, look at, look at it, excuse me, as an, a, an amazing way of thinking and just kind of putting somebody else before yourself in that moment and saying, you know what, go live your life. Like this is not almost, I, I kind of think of it when you told that story about when you had gotten to the go, go to the uh, seminar with Al Pacino and you talked about how instead of getting up and going asking him a question, you kind of just stayed there in the moment and you enjoyed getting to hear him speak and getting to be in his presence. And, you know, in that moment, you decided, okay, this is not about me. Like, I don't want to make this kind of like bring it, take, take attention away from Al Pacino. It's not exactly the same thing, but I think you kind of get the connection that I'm making. And I hope our listeners do as well that you are not in this moment. Or like, again, in this hypothetical, you wouldn't be taking time away from your family members. You wouldn't be taking, almost like trying to take time away from their lives of them going and living and doing what they want to do. 
you would be understanding, hey, this isn't about me at this moment. You get what I'm saying? Like I feel, I feel like there's kind of that correlation. That's kind of what I thought of when I was listening to you, you know, kind of talk about that hypothetical point in your life. And I found it very interesting. And again, I, I, if you have thoughts on that kind of correlation and connection, if that really kind of makes sense, but that's where my head kind of went. Right. Well, for example, um, since we last uh, broadcast, I went and shot a bow and arrow for the first time. Um, wow. I did, uh, I don't even know the, um, I used a slingshot with a paintball in it. Um, I, I never, seriously, I feel like I'm a hundred years old. I, I'd never done a, a slingshot. I'd never y- used, I'd never used a <laughs> slingshot device yeah. until last week. And, um, I mean, as my wife and I like to say, you know, that's the stuff like that's those kind of first time breakthrough incredible moments like Mm -hmm. those are the stuff those are the things that we remember that when we're out to dinner you know a year later five years later something will happen and it'll trigger like oh my god you remember that one that first time that we went out um and i got to do the slingshot with the paintball and so everybody deserves that to, to, to me, to, to my way of thinking, um, like if I had one wish, it would be for people to lead fulfilling lives. Um, I don't know about happy because, you know, everybody's definition of happy is different, but fulfilling lives where they felt like, okay, look, none of us are sure kind of what happened before we got here. None of us are kind of sure what's going to happen when we're no longer here. But what we are sure of is this is something that we can do and then thereby attach meaning to it and make the most out of our lives. So that's always where the focus, I, I think, needs to kind of be with people. And I mean, it's not necessarily the most popular uh point of view but yeah once you are decidedly no longer in that range where you can get those kind of special experiences um then maybe let other people have them and you know i mean like i've lived a lot of different kinds of lives um Ones where I was around hundreds and hundreds of people every day. Ones where it was literally just me in a room. Uh, Now, you know, when I'm living now with a wife, when I was younger with parents, a family, et cetera, et cetera. That was all I was living my life. Um, And so everybody should have the good fortune as to be able to have the chance to do that and then you know when life gets extremely tough and you can't have those types of experiences just shift your way of thinking maybe at that point it's time to write your memoir maybe it's time to read the collected works of Mahatma Gandhi maybe it's time any number of things are possible but being conscientious, um, thoughtful, and considering yourself as only one of billions, I mean, kind of puts it all in perspective um, a bit. You know, it definitely does. And I, I, I think this is a very fruitful conversation. I think it was cool for our listeners. Because again, usually we, we like to have guests on, we like to kind of hear, or just, you know, a- a- ask questions to our guests about their accomplishments, you know, we've had Dave Stevens on the show, we've had people from different organizations such as the Beatball Baseball League that we had probably like three, four episodes ago, but I think it's cool to have these kind of conversations and just dive into different topics between the two of us, because we both have very, very different perspectives on the world, just based on how you said you've lived so many different lives with so many different people. You know, I, I'm at a younger age than you are, so we've kind of experienced different phases of the world and different eras, that, that kind of thing. So I think it's very, very interesting, and I think it's 
good for our listeners to kind of hear us go back and forth with conversations like this and hear these very different varying perspectives. I, I, I think so. I don't know if you agree, but I enjoy having these conversations a lot. Absolutely. And um, yeah, going to be having more of them. Yeah. And it's important when you have these conversations to be mindful, to be thoughtful. Um, the objective here is never to be hurtful never to upset. We're not trying to be controversial, anything like that. We are simply offering our analysis, our thoughts on what is possible, how to consider a situation given the life experience that Centino and I have both had and where it's led us and uh, any such wisdom that we provide to you, our dear listeners, comes from that experience. So to cheapen that would be entirely unfair to the listening public. So you could definitely uh, decipher kind of what I was saying earlier as, oh, wow, he believes that like, oh, at 60, you should just go into a home and never be seen from again, blah, blah, blah. It's never that simple. It's never that easy. It's not what I was saying. The answer lies in nuanced, considered, thoughtful reflection. And that's always what we strive to put forth here um, on Visionaries. 100%. Always the goal. John, I know you got to pick respect and representation in the media this week. We are moving on to our next. Please inform our listeners what selection you made what movie tv show what are we looking at today uh we're going to be examining the comedy my blind brother starring adam scott nick kroll jenny slate and a number of other kind of alt or center left type comedians that routinely perform at black box theaters in the greater los angeles area Adam Scott is the titular blind brother in the film. He has made the most out of his life. Um, He's gone on to make the family as proud as possible with his athletic achievements. He is a runner. He's a fast runner. And he's become famous for his incredibly speedy finishing times as he completes races. Now his brother is Nick Kroll and his brother has been helpful, but is kind of at his wits end with helping out this guy who is his brother and who's disabled, but who is completely outpacing his own achievements. So you've got some resentment. There are, a, well, there's a bit of a, uh, a love triangle. And um, it's an interesting approach to the depiction of blindness where the principal character, the Adam Scott figure here is blind, but he's not the greatest person in the world. I mean, nor is he the worst person in the world. Um, The world kind of treats him like a baby panda, but when we see him in more domestic settings, uh, we do understand that he is, in fact, not a baby panda and is full of faults and foibles, all his own. And the wider public image that's broadcast of him is in contrast to that. He's seen as inspiration to many and a real shining beacon of a man for the disabled community. What did you think of, uh, of the film Santino? I thought it was a good film. One of the things I also wanted to bring up though, and get your thoughts on as well and just make this point. It seemed like in the movie, in the movie itself, 
Bill and Robbie like don't seem to like each other or get along very, very well. And I think that kind of might tie into how you were saying that Robbie, you know, he's not a bad person by any sense, but he's also not this like great, lovable, wonderful person either. Um, and it like it, it seems like Bill almost resents Robbie because Robbie does I don't want to say uses Bill, but Bill does kind of act almost like a guide dog and a helper to Robbie in a in, in a way. And nobody seems to really notice or really care or give Bill any credit for the role that he kind of plays in Robbie's life and how he helps him. I was curious if you if you got that same sense, but that was something I kind of noticed in watching the film. Absolutely, that he is very much um, just kind of a prop, as it were, somebody who helps out. Robbie, the, um, that's the Adam Scott character. His name is Robbie. And his brother, yes, helps him out um, with just the super-duper practical stuff. But he's not really seen with his own agency, his own sense of autonomy. He's kind of just there as an aide to... Um, to his brother Robbie, and then resentment starts to uh, to fester. Yeah, definitely, and you know it, it also again, and it, it kind of, I feel like it's almost personified by the fact that Bill is kind of is always kind of overshadowed by Robbie in a way too, because like you said, Robbie's a runner. He had become this sort of local hero, and Bill basically just like works at this dead end job at a printing shop. And again, like if he's not doing that, he's helping Robbie train for the next event and helping him kind of just become more and more of a, again, heroic figure within the community. So I think by, by, by kind of putting them on two opposite ends of the spectrum and also by um, emphasizing the fact that Bill doesn't really like working out very much, he doesn't really, he doesn't, he hates to exert himself physically, that kind of thing. I feel like all of that together really just personifies that message of, okay, Bill is just there to kind of help Robbie out. He's kind of that pawn that you described, that kind of thing. Um, other things that I noticed as well, though, within the movie, like you said, that kind of love triangle that was kind of going on there, that was a little bit of a weird dynamic, in my opinion. Not that I didn't like it. Again, the movie itself, I think, was really good, and I think it did do a good job of representing blindness as a whole very, very well, because like you said, they didn't make... Like you said, even though people did kind of view him, I think you said like a baby panda almost, they didn't make him this, like you said, uh, uh, like you said in the past with other characters, this amazing, f- flawless character that has nothing wrong with them, no vices, none of that kind of stuff. They did... They, 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 they didn't make him perfect as I feel like society, again, a lot of people will look at somebody that deals with blindness or maybe is deaf, those kind of things, and they think, oh, nothing's wrong with them. They could never have any kind of vices or anything wrong with them. They didn't, they didn't make the perfect kind of character, which I did kind of like, and I think that brought more realness to it. Absolutely. It's almost a um, – well, it does the disabled community no favors – when its counterparts in media and popular po- culture are depicted as these saint-like, god-like, impenetrable figures that are human beings, but probably human beings with like the H and the B both capitalized, um, italicized, underlined, and bold-faced. So... With performances like the one given by Adam Scott, who's on a real hot streak at the moment, as uh, the blind brother Robbie in this movie, we do get a more nuanced version of a character that we've seen dealt with one-note style analysis in other movies. We saw the Audrey Hepburn character in Wait Until Dark, obviously Mr. Magoo and uh, Ron Burgundy's blind period during the sequel to Anchorman, Val Kilmer's protagonist in At First Sight, The Book of Eli with Denzel. We have experienced a number of these visually impaired characters who 
have a real kind of one note quality, but that's not the case here. Adam Scott is uh, formed, fully formed, and that's not always for the best, but in a way it is because that's what makes him a human. Uh, folks with disabilities, visual, auditory, or otherwise, are not saints, just human beings dealing with what it is to be a human like everybody else. So initially, this was a movie that was on my radar because um, I wanted to crucify it, to be honest. Or, wrong choice of words, but um, I wanted to rail against it. It seemed like it was going to enrage me prior to even watching the film. It's like, hey, wait a minute. We're, can we just not make fun of the blind brother? Can't we... We've had the idiot brother. We've had the the twin brother. Like we can do any other versions of the ne'er do well, um, messed up his life brother. Okay, but my blind brother. Do we have to go there? And yet, I will say that I was wrong. And the depiction of blindness was thoughtful and um, absolutely reasonable in this particular film. So uh, I think Santina, we are in agreement on my blind brother being one that we can recommend to listeners. No, definitely. And I, again, like you said, I think w the reason that we recommend this over some other movies is because they portray Billy or no, sorry, Ro Robbie. Sorry. I confused the two names. Robbie, they portray him as a real person and not this kind of fictional, like perfection, per perfection of a human if you will. So yeah, I definitely would uh, recommend that people to watch. I think we're both in agreement there. Absolutely. Um, so then that's going to take us to our final segment, connecting the dots and inspired by the Braille typewriter, which is comprised entirely of dots in connecting the dots. We like to take what we have learned and apply it to the outer world. So those longtime visionaries listeners will know that I just got married. Uh, my wife and I tied the knot officially in March after multiple years of courtship. And Lisa and I are doing incredibly well as a couple in our first few months of marriage. But we did have something of not a breakdown but there's a reoccurring issue that consistently pops its head out into the open. And it revolves around my lack of being open or upfront about what happened during my day. So she'll come home from work at like 4.30 or so, and I am not sure how to tell her about all of the difficult things that happened while I was using public transit or out in the world. So for a long time, like let's say, okay, for example, yesterday I went to get her a birthday present. There was an issue getting to the place where I got the birthday present. There was an issue leaving there was an issue at the next place I got where it was another item for her birthday and on and on and on. And so after a while, rather than, you know, she'll say, oh, honey, I did this today. I did that today. And like my overall goal will be, OK, I had to go to the South Bay to get tickets to something for her birthday that you can't get online etc etc so my day involved going to san pedro it got to a point where explaining just exactly how challenging the stuff was seemed like it was getting very repetitive i'd go oh well i was waiting for the you know i was waiting for the bus and it was scheduled to come at 11.20. It ultimately didn't get there until 11.50. And when it got there, the bus driver said, hey, um, unfortunately, you're standing on the wrong side of the street. You need to be on the other side of the street. I said, oh, my God. 
Okay, and when does the next bus come? Mm, I don't know, probably an hour. Okay, so I've already invested an hour standing in what I believed was the right spot for the bus. Turns out it was the wrong one. What recourse do I have but to go walk across the street and stand another hour for that bus that's going to take me from San Pedro into downtown Los Angeles? And so for the first X amount of months of our marriage, I would keep all of this inside. Um, after, I mean, prior even to our marriage, it was only a few months into our relationship where I made an executive call that like, Hey, those kinds of stories are going to happen almost every single day. I'm going to have somebody on the bus who maybe they laugh at me when I walk aboard and they say something in Spanish underneath their breath. That's an insult that I can't understand. Or when I walk on the bus, um, and I try to sit down, I can't see that there's a person in a wheelchair. So I began, unfortunately, starting to sit on somebody in a wheelchair, and then they have to yell at me, and then I feel terrible about myself. All of these little things, I never tell anybody. Um, The stuff that happens uh, just to me out in the world, I really don't share with anybody. Because, yes... um, There are a ton of nice and caring, thoughtful individuals, but there are also folks that make life extremely challenging, even more so than it has to be. And so with this tradition of how was your day, let me tell you about my day, I was not carrying up uh, my end of the bargain. And it took a number of painful conversations, difficult ones, ones that really only a married couple can engage in with um, the kind of safety and security necessary to get the most out of these conversations. But I finally started to say, listen, I'll tell you exactly what happened during my day. If you're interested in hearing it, I used to just edit all of it out before you even got home so you would not have to actually hear it. But if you would like to, and I'm more than happy to share. And my wife is big on sharing and transparency. And so the lesson here is don't keep it all bottled up inside. If you're with a partner and they tell you they really want to know what it was like, It's okay to feel reticent. It's okay to feel a bit trepidatious about doing it. But if you do feel safe and secure with the person, it's okay. Tell them. Tell them exactly what happened. If they want to know, let them know. And it's healthy communication, transparency, and being on the same page that from my short experience with marriage, have been the best courses of actions at my disposal. So while it wasn't interesting to me to tell her about, oh God, and this happened for the millionth time, there was a person who came on to the bus or there was a person who came on to the train and they caused an incident and then the ruckus and blah, 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 blah. While that was not interesting to me anymore, it was to her and respecting your partner and your partner in many ways is your caretaker. So doing the respect of being honest with them. It's important. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. So sorry. Yeah. Be, be, I was going to say being honest is something that is key. Communication is something that is key in all relationships, whether it's with us, uh, you know, a partner, wife, girlfriend, family, anything, that is so important, and, I, and, I, and I'm glad that it's something that you have been able to, I guess, work on or adapt to getting better at because it is almost freeing in a way when you can just kind of talk about what's going on and you, even just in your day, simple things. I, I, I definitely enjoy doing that with my family. So just I think the overall point, communication is key. Absolutely. Um, folks are not mind readers. Uh, they have not walked miles in your shoes. And – Until they tell you 
that, hey, we don't have to go um, deep into the nitty gritty on what the public transit was like today, then, yeah, tell them what they'd like to know. Um, Because otherwise, it makes them feel like they are at, um, you know, an arm's distance, that you do not want them to come any closer. And um, it can feel alienating to that person. So if they ask, tell them the answer. Just be open with them. That's the overall message is that just don't close them out. Don't shut them out because because of the fear that you might have. And I'm talking to the listeners when I say this, that if you do have that fear of being open and honest, try to you know build that trust with somebody and be able to have that relationship where you can talk about it if they want to know. And don't expect them to just know things if you don't tell them. Because like John said, we're not mind readers. People just don't magically know everything that's going on with you or how you feel about certain things that went on in your day. And if they're asking, they want to know. They're not just asking you for the sake of asking you. At least I, I, I would hope not. I don't think so. But the overall point is just communication and being honest and open is key. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think uh, that's where we're going to leave it for another installment of Visionaries. Santino, how can the good folks find us out there in the great wide world? Yeah, guys, hop on our Instagram. Go look us up at Visionaries. You can give us a follow there. If you hit the link in our bio on our Instagram, you will find all 17. This will be our 17th episode. All of our episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can send us a DM. Um, we'll be posting updates. You can like those images. You'll see our photos. All of our updates on our content when it is posted. Um, yeah, and just send us a DM if you have any thoughts, concerns, comments, anything. We are happen, happy and open to hear all of your thoughts about our episodes and our wonderful podcast. So thank you guys so much for listening to another great episode of Visionaries from Santino Mayoni and John Steinberg. We will see you guys next time.